Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Diva Behavior, the podcast where we talk all about women in pop culture, why some of us get called divas, and how we can channel that diva energy to be the best version of ourselves, no matter what the haters think. Now, I have some new followers from TikTok, so hello, everybody. I'm so happy to see you here. I know that you guys probably saw my TikToks about Girls Next Door and Holly Madison, and I'm so thankful that you're checking out the podcast now. It's awesome. So mostly this podcast is usually about people in pop culture and entertainment news, but every once in a while, I meet someone who is enough of a standalone diva on their own that I just make the whole podcast about them and interview them. And that person this week is Lucia Brizzi, aka Talia Brava. So Lucia and I were on the same comedy show. It's a, it's called The Moonual. It's like a combination comedy show slash moon ritual that happens twice a month. And Lucia was embodying her dominatrix character, Talia Brava, and it was so funny. And she also did a guided meditation, which really honestly helped me lay out my entire year. And I know that sounds crazy, but it's true. And she was just awesome. So I just needed to know more about her. So we talked about so many different things. We talked about her going to like dominatrix boot camp and learning how to be a dominatrix, celebrity pathological liars because Lucia was once Hilaria Baldwin's yoga student, which is incredible. We talked about female cult leaders. We talked about everything. It was a great conversation. And I just really hope that some of Lucia's awesome energy can rub off on me and everybody else. If you're looking for something else cool to listen to this week, check out my YouTube channel because Sarah Armour and I started a new recurring series called Diva Divination where we are going to be talking about the intersection between astrology and celebrity. And what we did this week was we talked about Princess Diana and Kristen Stewart's birth charts. And it was really mind-blowing. It was really awesome. It was such a fun conversation. So if you want to listen to that, check out my YouTube channel. Just search Molly Mulshine on YouTube. Please rate and review Diva Behavior on Apple Podcasts. It is the best way to spread the word about this little podcast and make sure it gets in front of as many people's eyeballs and ear holes as possible. Ew, that's such a weird thing to say. Just just rate and review it, okay? And pretend that I didn't say ear holes. Follow me on social media at Molly Molshine. Follow Lucia everywhere you can find her. Lucia Brizzi, aka Talia Brava. She's got socials and websites and everything for all of her multiple aliases. And enjoy the episode. Some people think Diva is a diva to you. Would you say, are you one? Diva behavior, the podcast. So I'm here with Lucia. Do you say Brizzy or Britzy? Britzy, like pizza. Okay, love it. So that's like full on Italian. I love your name. It's so Italian. Thank you. Are you, are your like parents from Italy or anything? My dad came here um, when he was like, 
in his 20s with Borat teeth and he found my mom had put up a sign with her girlfriend that was like two women sign seeking one man sign for their apartment in New York. And so he applied, he got the apartment. And then like within a few weeks, he like revealed that he needed a green card. They drank a lot of espresso and probably did some drugs and got married, stayed together for 20 years, loveless marriage. Um, but they, they fought it out, like literally just fought the whole time. And then they got divorced. And now he has been the giver of green card marriages to not one, but two women. Wow. Pay it forward. Right. I love that. So when you say it was a loveless marriage, was it truly just like utilitarian? Let's do this so you can stay in the country because they had you. So obviously they were loving each other at least once. Well, that's the thing. They, they had fun together is how they put it. Um, <laughs> means like probably a lot of cocaine and running around New York city, highest kites. Um, and then I think it was like, I think there was that thing of sticking things out. I don't understand, you know, Parents really, they say, you know, parents don't understand, like kids don't understand. They fought every single day, but I think it must have been like a deep core wound of in in unworthiness that they both shared because they stayed together for 20 years before they were like, maybe I could find something that with someone who likes me. Are they boomers? Yes. There you go. There you have it. I'm glad that we're kind of healing those generational wounds in our gen- Well, hopefully. I mean, who knows? We'll see what happens. Yeah, who knows? I mean, uh, my dad is very, like, passionate. And he, like, since being married to my mom, like, I think, I think honestly, maybe it's because they had kids and they had, like, the family and the house and the things. Uh, who knows, really? But he's definitely, like, a passionate Italian. So, like, he's, since my mom, like, really led a life driven by passion for better or worse. Well, that's good. Do you go to Italy with him ever? We used to, when I was a child, we went like almost every year. Um, but no, I haven't been in a while. And obviously with the whole thing that, you know, she who will not be named coronavirus. Yeah, totally. So Tell us a little bit. We just went on such a tangent, but it was so great without the listeners even really knowing who you are and what you're about. So you do a little bit of everything. You do acting, you do comedy, you do coaching as well, right? Yes. So and, I, yes. And I met you doing this incredibly hilarious dominatrix character on the moon you all. So let's well, give me your story. Okay. So I think the thing that the main thing is like, I feel like my skill sets have come together in a synergy that is having an alter ego who does personal growth work. So the woman that you met, Talia Brava, I consider her an alter ego. Like I've been, I've been being her for like six years and like, she is an aspect of my humanity, like really like the shadow side, like coming forward, like total narcissist, like take up the room. Whereas me, Lucia, like I think my deep core insecurity is like, don't take up too much space like as a human. So I feel like it's been a permission for me to do that. And so I was raised by a woman's leadership coach um, and raised into that work, but always was like this weird comedian and was like wrestling with both where I'm like, my personality is like always been the comedian and the clown and the platform. And yet like my mother is like, place the power suit on me and it's like, go lead. And it's like, I have kind of both happening. Like my dad's the clown, my mom's the, the leader, the leader. Right. And like, 
I feel like I always had this split and I was even told by my mother, like it's a fireable offense for you to do like a, a satire of training, like early, early when I came up with this idea well, this was like 10 years ago. Um, and then I kind of abandoned the idea and then just started, it, I came back to it like years later. So I always knew that I would be making fun of or satirizing the work that I care about. And so now I feel like there's this like interesting synergy where I'm actually utilizing Talia Brava to speak with authority on things that me, Lucia, would feel insecure about speaking with authority on, like spiritual truths. You know, like that's I, really cool, right? Like I would never go on a live as Lucia and just be like, "God's talking to me." But like when I, <laughs> as I am Talia, I like tune into believing that. Oftentimes, I come up with things that I could not have come up with on my own, you know, like things that come out of Tali Brava's mouth. I know I did not Lucia come up with. So how did you start embodying this alter ego? Like what was the beginning of it? So there's a few different origin stories for different pieces. One is at my brother's wedding when I was super crunk and I just started telling everybody I'm Talia like it is. And I tell you like it is. And I just thought that was so hilarious. It had me giggling, at least for myself all night long. So that was like a little tiny seed. But then the the more substantial beginning of the story is watching the Tony Robbins documentary and being like, wow, he's basically playing a magician trick where he's like, I believe that I can change you. You believe that I can change you. You've invested this money, time and belief. And now massive change is happening. And I was like, wow, this is so funny that, um, you know, it kind of is a magic trick. And I was like, what if I were to do a show where I'm this arrogant person who just watched the Tony Robbins documentary, steals his practices, because they're pretty much like the same thing on repeat when you watch the documentary. Like his coaching strategy is like pretty cookie cutter. So I was like, what if I just did that as a like a, a comedy show? And I just came on stage and was like, I watched the documentary and now I'm going to change your life. And just believed internally that I could. What if, as a social experiment for myself, what if people could walk out of that comedy show with actual change happening? So I started playing with that in this show, the Tony Robbins Netflix special, special. And then That's what your show was called. Yes. And then from that, I like, I actually realized, like, wait, this is a whole other person. So then Talia was born. Then my boyfriend, who was in the show, broke up with me. So Talia had a spiritual awakening slash Lucia, right? Had my spiritual whatever the, you know, every time your heart gets broken, I feel like we feel it's so substantial that, you know, angels must be talking to us. So I um, basically, Talia evolved over the course of this show was, I think, six years ago. I did the Fringe Festival maybe five years ago. And oh, the- in Edinburgh? No, Los Angeles, Hollywood Fringe Festival, much less exciting. Um, no, well, at least it's not, you know, in Scotland. <laughs> I've never been. You know, a girl's always dreaming of it. So for for us, like, you know, South America, it sounds really cool. Wait, hold on. I know. I am joking. Scotland is absolutely gorgeous. And Scottish people are truly, like, some of the coolest people alive. It's just the weather is, like, the weather is what you think what London weather is on steroids. That's the only, like, bummer about it. But, yeah. Also, like, being around that many thespians honestly gag me but but also it's mm. fun right so yeah um but yeah so I started with that show and then it became more and more like the woo-woo aspects and then I did a dominatrix screening so then I was like wow I'm actually kind of a dominatrix like then boys started paying me for things online so I toyed with that a bit but now what kind of things did they pay you for 
like my, dancing on my three cams, which is a real thrill. I mean, if you just put on some glitter hot shorts and people start tipping you, it's very fun. Um, That's awesome. I got, oh, this was fun. Um, I still have a listing up for like guided hypnosis. Every now and then I get phone calls from Night Flirt from, and I just like fantas- just do weird, long, hypnotic rants that I, I wouldn't say are like particularly sexual, but for certain people, they just want to be spoken to from a dominatrix mommy who tells them to devote and say that they love them. And then I often found myself in situations where I was like, I don't know what to do next. I'd be like, get naked and put your head on the ground. And because I'm not truly a um, masochist or I'm not truly a sadist. It was like, I think the line for me is like, I'm not really a sadist. So when I went to the Dom training, like I did it, you know, like I did all the things I wrapped up the balls and such, (laughs) but I didn't take pleasure. Wait, so what is Dom training? You went to like summer camp for dominatrixes. And I love that this came out of you doing a funny character when you were drunk at your brother's wedding to now you're doing actual dominatrix work as a a bit. Rabbit hole, right? It was like, (laughs) it is, it is that moment where you, when you take the pulse on your life and you're um, surprised. So my teacher, Miss Mistress Damiani Chi, she is a true goddess. You feel her presence. I mean, when I'm around her, I just want to hand her my money. I just want just for the the pleasure of seeing like a glint of approval in her eyes. She's so queen. Um, and also she's a very, very generous teacher. So she's been a dominatrix and from a psychological point of view, which is what drew me to it because she's all about the fact that it's 90% psychological, which is why she was like, you are doing this work and you can continue to. And so I bring that into my coaching work now, which is, it's not the physical aspects. Like I'm, as I said, like I'm not into the gory stuff, which we did all of it. Like I've seen it and I've witnessed it and I've tried it and it's not my thing. Mm-hmm. But what I'm into is um, the psychological, you know, the, the psychological healing that can come from it, which really she imparted upon us. Um, and the, the subspace is really a powerful place. Um, so now even in like my yoga class and like I teach spin and like I am a coach, I, I know it's a service to tap into that really high authority as like a female bodied person. Um, and it's an interesting thing to play with. Like I understand it now that in terms of that ability to be totally in surrender and how meditative it can be, like we got the experience too of being the subs and just like night one of the training, I was full nude in the middle of the room with Mistress Damiani, like making me walk around, follow her feet and, and then I just thought, wow. honestly, I'm going to be real. I'm a natural. Boo. I'm a natural at it. Ha-ha. <laughs> <laughs> psychological. It's like making people carry me around the room. And like, I'm a natural at making me, you know, at, make, at being in that diva behavior. The diva behavior comes naturally to me, which I was surprised because that was clamped down in my household. Because I had kind of, you know, when there's one character who needs to be that, no one else can be. So I had that dynamic going on. Yeah, I want to talk to you about having a mom who is maybe a feminist, definitely a boomer, sort of a second wave. I don't know if this is ringing true to you, but this is my situation. And obviously, like, I love my mom. She did a great job. But she also definitely was stuck in this sort of second wave feminist mindset that was very slut shamey, very if you 
if you care about your appearance, you're stupid and people are going to take advantage of you. Not because she thought those things necessarily, but because she thought that was protecting me to be like, oh, make sure you don't get too girly because people will think you're stupid. Make sure you don't do this because people will think this. So it, was that your experience at all? So resonates. So my grandma was a freaking Rosie the Riveter. She was a, a riveter. She was the first one to grab, graduate from Harvard Architectural School. So she really carried that. Like she didn't let any Barbies for my mom. She was always in like, just, just like no makeup, but looked amazing. Very Catherine Hepburn, right? But very anti-vulnerability. To be taken seriously, she had to fight so hard. So my mom has the trickle down effect of that where she really cares about her looks, but she would be... It was all these mixed messages where it's like, I'm going to put my makeup on in the car because I'm really here for, you know, my, my ideas, not my beauty, but then running to the bathroom to check her face. And, you know, so it's like actually the total, the total confusion of like, it is the most important thing that we look amazing and we utilize that. And it is also never let anyone know that you give a that you care at all, show up in workout clothes with your hair disaster to show that you're smart. So it's like both happening. And then the, in terms of the, the slut shaming aspect of it, there was definitely moments of, of just very specific things I was told. For instance, I remember my mom saying, cause she's a women's leadership coach and she like knows, understands the biases. I remember in high school, she said, if you wear your skirt that short, your teachers won't respect you. They won't even know why, but they just won't really take you seriously. So there were little moments like that where it's, and it's interesting, right? It's like, as a parent, like, how do you, how do you tell your daughter about these things and how do you talk to them about it? And then at the same time, yeah, because like, she's yeah. not wrong. Yeah. Right. Like that was actually good awareness to let me know that. Yeah. I feel like there's also in the older generations, especially the ones who had to go out and work in male dominated fields, there is a little bit of a disdain for women who were able to succeed while keeping their femininity intact, right? Like being really annoyed by like actresses and singers who are really upfront about their femininity and still able to be powerful. Mm-hmm. I feel it is such a, it is such a reckoning of our wholeness right now that's happening. That is so exciting. Because yeah, even like just slightly older than us, because I, you know, as I work as a women's leadership coach. And so I hear about women and specifically right now I'm working with women in STEM and academia, which is like, if you want like, to go back to the 1950s, like go get a job in science in a mm-hmm. university, at least in America. Um, it, they're just so, it's so hard and there's so few women and the old boys club is so real. But what they say, what the women that I work with say about the women that are quote unquote above them or a little, just a little bit older than them, that they really had that, right. It's like, we see this, it's like the left or right. It's like either you are just total impersonator of a man and you just cut off all that. You have to leave it somewhere or you're what in their eyes, like appeasing and docile and just being the quote unquote feminine traits that are likable and not standing up for themselves and not pushing forward and all that. So it's like, it's like left or right. And neither is a whole person. And so you sort of have this alter ego to reconcile that in a way, right? Yes. Because you know, the, I mean, the, the, the research on women says that women can't be likable and successful, that the more competent a woman is seen, the less likable she is. 
And likability is actually a career derailer for women. So it's called the double bind because we can't get ahead while we're trying to be likable and also competent. Talia Brava is a quote unquote, not real person. So I can be so fierce, so truth telling, so dislikable. I mean, literally like almost every time I come on to the moon Yule, which is where you met me, I start off by just berating the host Sarah in a way that I would never do as her friend. But truly, I am so much more real when I get on a live stream as Talia because any emotion that's happening, I just, it comes out. Whereas with me, Lucia, every time I come on a live stream, I feel myself, know myself, checking in with how do people feel? What do they want to hear? And those are all beautiful things to have an awareness of. But having the liberation from that as a woman for even five minutes is so great. Mm-hmm. But also the stuff you were saying, it was never hurtful. It was really just funny and like, because it was real and it wasn't like you were putting people down. It was just like that brutal honesty and it was just like so great. Thank you. That's what I aim for is truly that because I think there's such a delight when we are crystal clear. And I think that's why people like us who do comedy love it so much because it's an opportunity to be crystal clear and truthful Um, because people can, it's, you know, people can take it when there's, when it's funny. I mean, my grandma's like embodiment, right? It's like, if you really, really want to be truthful, you have to be really funny. And my grandma could just like tear me apart, but she was so funny about it that I loved it. Right. I feel like we have the same exact family upbringing, except for I'm not Italian. I'm just from New Jersey. So I like feel Italian sometimes. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's real. That's very real. It's funny. Like, like my fiance's family is Irish and I'm like explaining Italian food to them all the time. And they're like, why do you know this? Like, this doesn't make sense. And I'm like, because like New Jersey is Italy. But when I first met you, I heard, oh, Molly's coming from London. I was so excited for the Lily Allen. And then when she came forward with the Jersey roots, I was even more pleased to be in, in camaraderie with you. I know, dude. I'm like trying so hard to lose this Jersey accent and it's just not happening. It's horrible. The only thing I said the other day that sounded British, it was probably the first time I've been living here for two and a half years. It was probably the first time I ever pronounced a word in a British way. I said conservatory instead of conservatory. Wow, that sounds great. You need and a night flirt line just for that word. I know. I should, I should just, I'll, I'm going to just work it in a little bit more and say it more frequently. So you refer to yourself in all your socials and everything as a comedic cult leader. So can you explain what this means? Absolutely. So Talia, as I spoke about, like she started very in the masculine with this Tony Robbins style work. And then as all great personal growth leaders do evolve, it became more and more culty, right? So um, her whole thing is building the Brava baby world, um, and to be a Brava baby, you have to devote completely. There is a ritual devotion, love spell experience you can do at taliabrava.com under teachings. And it's a cult community wedding where you vow to her forever. So it's basically until November 3rd of 2020, it was building up to rapture. Okay. To go home to her planet Providence. Yeah. And still on the like, as she would pronounce that. We actually, because of lockdown, it was astral as well as, you know, on the planetary fields, there was no travel. So like it was called off in terms of rapturing there. We brought Bravidence here to earth and that began more of an actual serious working with my intellect mixed with Talia's insanity 
to create the Brava, the B Brava trainings. So now I'm doing these week or monthly, I'm doing monthly retreats. Um, and they are basically three hour trainings that are available online, like live or on demand. And they are really bringing in some practical tools, some fantastical tools and bring those together. So Brava and Lucia Brizzi coaching really coming together for be Brava. And it's all about building Providence here on earth. So it went from join my cult, come with me to Providence, my planet where everything is just as I like it from Talia's point of view to now really encouraging people to believe and dream in the fact that you can create your own world and using the work that I do as Talia Brava as sort of an invitation to be a bit more playful with our roles and our lives and all of that. So a lot of people are hesitant about things like coaching and any sort of like self-help or spirituality because they're like, oh, it's a secret cult. And you're just out here using the word cult. Yes. I was very inspired by a girlfriend or actually a non-binary friend, Unicole Unicron. I followed her early on in the Talia experience as I was, I'm fascinated by cult leaders. I think a lot of us are, you know, especially female cult leaders. Um, and utilize Who are some of the biggest female cult leaders. Well, I don't know any besides say, like, you know, Lady Gaga. Oh, I would say listen to the gateway about Teal Swan. My friend Jennings Brown created it. And Teal Swan is an, a very interesting character study. Um, she's been called the suicide cult because people started having suicidal thoughts when they were around her. Um, and then other than that, yeah, it, it's been a history mostly of men. Uh, and my friend, Unicole Unicron, who is non-binary, they are revolutionary in that they took back the word very early. You know, like they've been doing this for like 10 years and they are like, I I'm a cult, but I brainwash you to believe in yourself. And you're always being brainwashed. So why not be brainwashed into actually believing that you can do anything you want to do? So the, it was very fun the way she, they took it back. And then I met with her and like got to know her and they were like, people will join a comedic cult. And then I thought of the value in getting to play a game full out, right? Just like when you go to a dominatrix everyone knows it's a role play, right? But you play the game full out. So similarly, getting to play the game full out and have the psychological experience of devoting it in a safe way. I mean, I have people who claim they are, they are Bravo babies. And they say, you know, like, it feels so good when you're telling me how much you love me. You know, every, every time I'm being Talia, I'm seeing my audience as these sweet Bravo babies that I'm guiding and leading. And there is a true, you know, back and forth there, even as it is quote unquote, a role play and a joke. And I'm saying things that I think are intentionally funny. Do you think if you wanted to get your Brava babies to go down to Guyana and drink some Kool-Aid, would they do it? Would you be able to like use these powers for evil? Mm, that's a very there are people who are emotionally and psychologically susceptible to this that I do run into. And I, I really like steer the cart away. Oh yeah. Um, because I, there are, you know, a lot of unwell people. Um, and I think a good litmus test for sanity is understanding comedy. Wow. Yeah. That's so true. So it's like, if they get the joke, that's like, okay, great. You know, even if they get part of the joke, <laughs> that's great. 
Um, but if they don't, I, I just tend to not reply. And that, I mean, the greatest defense from, you know, people being in your orbit is just non-response. So. Wow. So how do people find you? So I am still struggling with this. I think this is one of my, you know, I'm not, I'm not unique in this. We're all trying to find our bigger audience in this like ocean where no one has a good fishing rod called the internet, except for Bezos. And you know, he won't like that. He has no, he has no customer service line Bezos. Do you realize that we can even chat with him? So yeah. So it's challenging, right. To find like our platforms. I utilize Instagram because I like it, not because it's like been the most successful, but I have found um, similar to like, our connection, you know, we met on the moon, although we connected on Instagram. So I feel like Instagram is kind of the phone book and I've made some really good connections with people that I admire in the personal spiritual growth world through it. Um, that have been really exciting. And I do find that people are responsive, like about, for instance, if you run a, you know, you do an interview series, I, I, you, you doing an interview series. I find that's my most successful way to reach out and connect with people that I admire because people want you to share their platform and people are, people are flattered. I mean, I'm flattered that you'd have me. So it's surprising how people that I see in my eyes as being, you know, out of reach will be very responsive to an interview invitation. Yeah, totally. That's what I've been trying to do this year is just reach out to more people because the worst thing that happens is they say no. Well, no, the worst thing that happens is they say yes and then you play email tag with them for three months until they ghost you. That has happened to me like one or two times where somebody's like, yeah, this will be great. Let's do it. Send me a list of questions. Oh my God, these questions are amazing. I can't wait to answer them all. And then suddenly they just stop responding and it's like, oh my God, did I tweet something bad? Like, like what is going on? Well, but- like, you know what? I was thinking about your podcast, you know, diva behavior. And I was like, you know what? I'm all for diva behavior. Diva behavior is knowing what you want, need, and, and being an adult about it, right? It's being divine in your divine order. But um, drama, that's drama behavior. That's just a time waster, you know? Mm-hmm. And why? Why are they wasting their own time? You know, it's almost like, it's, it's almost like dating where it's like, you. it's insulting that they think that they're going to break your heart so much by just saying, yes. I hate that. I hate when someone is unresponsive and then when they finally respond, they apologize so much that you feel like they are under the impression that you were waiting around crying. Like I missed somebody's messages yesterday or the day before and it was because they messaged me through Facebook and I never use Facebook. And I was like, I'm not going to apologize profusely because – this person probably doesn't actually care that much. And it will be more insulting if I'm like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I know you were waiting by the phone for my friggin' Facebook response, you know? That's why I say just check it. Like I am like Mary J. Blige all the way home, like no more drama in our lives. And it's urgency checking with myself and with others. When people come in hot with me in my inbox, I urgency, urgency check. I urgency fact check that. And then also with myself, it's like that trigger response and, and just checking in what is this in me that feels like if I'm not pleasing everyone at every moment, I'm going to die, you know? I know that's really hard. That is something that I, I mean, I need to channel my own diva behavior more frequently with that kind of thing, because like the other day I was looking, 
I was reading some newsletter and there was a link to a tweet in it and I clicked the link and I had never heard of this person before and they had blocked me on Twitter. And I've thought about it every day since. <laughs> I'm just like, I wasn't missing this person. I didn't know who they were. I still don't know who they are because I was blocked. But now I'm just like, oh my God, what and did you know, I do? What, what's so infuriating about this whole social media thing is that they have built the algorithm to appeal to the inner teenager. And so there's this reversion to teenager behavior. It's all about popularity, which I was always bad at, you know, because, and I'm okay, I will actually say as a link to that, having low, low view counts, low, low like counts on shit, on things that I, on my best work, right? My best work getting no respect. I love it because I feel like I'm that weird artsy kid again in high school who none of the boys want to make out with, but side note, she looks great. You know, that's a great way to look at it. It really is. Also, we can just blame the algorithms for everything. And also I think that Instagram is really bad for discoverability at this point. I don't think they're really surfacing interesting new content to people who aren't already following it. It's a catalog. Yeah, it's shopping and that's it. I think TikTok is where it's at for discoverability now. So I'm going to become the world's oldest TikTok star. (laughs) I'll follow you. I will. I I mean, like literally follow you. And also I would follow your footsteps. I only put up dance videos so far. Well, I feel like spiritual stuff does really well on there because it's Gen Z and they are such little Looney Tunes. Like, I love them. Willow's all the way. Yes, I'm I'm so real. Yeah. So on the topic of spirituality and humor, I feel like so often, and obviously the Moonyuol has changed my perspective on this and knowing Sarah and her work has changed my perspective on this, but so frequently people who are into really spiritual stuff are not funny and they're so dead serious and it just makes me want to run 600 miles away. So how do what do you think about that? What's well, like the crossover? My my snaps are up for those who can't see. I'm just snapping away at that Molly because I think what frustrates me so much is people who take themselves so freaking seriously. I mean, I think the greatest working comedian is Marion Williamson. I love her taking herself so god literally godly, godly serious. So for me, you can't really be funny if you're not willing to have like that cutting energy. And I have encountered in the spiritual community that that was seen as defensive or, you know, I, I joined a cult basically in Maui um, and it was an ayahuasca commune before, I, before it was cool. I was in my early. How long were you in this commune for? So I was only there for two weeks, but it was highly substantial because the last day of that two weeks is when I took the ayahuasca. And then the next day I was like, I'm an actress. I need to go back to New York. I can't sit on rocks and drink coconuts with these hippies anymore, even though it was very appealing, right? It was a very appealing place to be. But they really saw me, they were basically trying to indoctrinate me into their world. And they saw me as sick from my you know, Jersey upbringing. And every time I would be funny, I mean, aren't we all? Yeah. Every time I was funny, they thought it was like just, you know, a dagger in someone's heart chakra. And you know, honestly get a little bit of a, get your, if your heart chakra is so fragile, maybe you gotta go do some, you know, aerobics. So <laughs> yeah, in my opinion, it's very real. Uh, the, the taking themselves seriously. It's just like, you know, the same could be said of, very political groups or anything. Anytime people really just are drinking their own urine on a cyclical basis of their beliefs, just being regurgitated and reinforced by each other, it's not a good thing. And 
the most important thing to me is open-mindedness and willingness to be in the discovery. So I don't care what your belief system is. If you have, if you hold that and you hold the belief in the goodness of, of humanity on a core level, then I'm part of your soul fam. Yeah, totally. With this ayahuasca cult, what, how often were they taking ayahuasca? Too, too often. I mean, you should take ayahuasca as I have twice in my life. I think you should take ayahuasca maybe once at like a pivotal time. Um, but it was a bunch of lost boys, really. So basically, the way this happened, should I tell you the story in a, in a contained version? Yeah, Cliff Notes. Okay. Cliff Notes version. So I went to Maui. I literally couldn't go back home to New York where I was a cocktail waitress, struggling actress. I went in and out of security like six times, decided I'm staying here. Got on a bus, met a boy. He's wearing broken socks. I was like, do you know where there's a commune I can stay? Or uh, um, uh, just like a place for young hippies, whatever. He's like, I actually work on a commune. Come come live with us. He just felt my energy. He was vibing. I was like, I'm there. I got there that first night. They're singing to ayahuasca. I have no idea what they're talking about. I go to bed. I'm like, I stay there for two weeks. I'm like, I love everything here, but I'm not drinking your Kool-Aid. Y'all are crazy. It was run by one woman who's the wife of the guy who started Cafe Gratitude in Los Angeles, California, which is like the big started what? He he's the owner of Cafe Gratitude, which is like a very big eye rolly joke almost, but very real. Also, it's a, a great cafe establishment where you order things like I am whole. So okay. that's why runs this place. She has a thing called Cafe Attitude, very hello, like diva behavior. I'm doing my own thing, boo. She loves the ayahuascas. Um, and so she started a church, basically. Um, and everyone there was really afraid of the world, chemtrails, Illuminati talk continuously. And then just all the all the young guys, it was mostly like young 20-year-old boys, they would just do like tons of ayahuasca, like while growing it, like all, like every night they'd be like, let's go. Um, and then they had once a month ritual rituals. So that's what I joined for um, eventually because I, I needed direction and I got it. It was amazing. It was gorgeous. I fell in love with myself and I know what it means to experience love from the inside out. Did it stick around? Wow, really? Yeah. I mean, I felt it. It didn't stick around sustainably. Right. And that's why those drugs are vacation, not a home to live at. Um, Mm -hmm. And yet it, it gave me such clarity, such direction and purpose. I came home. Everyone thought I had had a nervous breakdown. Maybe they were right. I pitched, I met Joel Cohen. I had the great opportunity of meeting him and I pitched him on my Cohen brother of the Cohen brothers. He had a coffee with me. It's like my mom's old time friend. It was a big, big, exciting moment for me as a young actress. And I spent the entire time pitching him on my new documentary idea why is the government trying to poison me? So I'll just say that mind altering drugs should be used in discretion around people that you trust that maybe are not talking about conspiracy theories continuously. Yeah, definitely. I think, yeah, that's really cool that ayahuasca gave you that sort of self-love moment because that is something that I think it just takes so long to get there. I'm not there yet. And it would have been great to have a shortcut just to feel a little for a moment what it's like so that you can then pursue that feeling because you're familiar with it. A thousand percent. I'll never forget knowing that it is real. And so even as I then went through my twenties of, you know, stupid dating experiences, I at least like, just as you said, it's a North star. Yeah. So they, did they actually verbalize to you? You are too New Jersey with your sense of humor and it's bad. 
Yeah, they would say that you're an experiment. We can smell your products. Like for using Colgate, they like we can smell the products on you. And I'm sure you could smell plenty on them. Exactly. I mean, coconuts are wonderful for some things, but not for all. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, it was it was really that thing. I would say a joke and or even just a a turn of phrase or I would just put things in a creative way with my words because that's like what we as comedians like to do. And um I actually had to get to the point where I told one of the kids, I just need you to stop trying to fix me because it was intolerable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if they were cool with themselves, they wouldn't be trying to fix people obsessively. Exactly. Yeah. So what's it like living in LA as sort of like a blunt New Jersey Italian person? Oh, that's such a good question. So, it was definitely a culture shock to recognize that I was coming in hard, you know, and shooting people down unintentionally. Cause that's just how the banter begins, right? Like that's an engaging conversation is just coming in full force with all your energy and recognizing that people thought I was saying your opinion is not valid. So I had to learn how to listen better, uh, be a lot more patient. And it's very good medicine for me because my system cannot handle like the level of intensity and stress that New York provides. Yeah. I feel that I felt the same way coming to London, like, and I still come on so strong compared to most British people. Like people, a lot of people in the North of England are more intense. Well, not intense, but blunt and honest. Whereas people in the South where I am, it's super, super just passive aggressive. It's like, Like one time I was on the tube and, you know, it's a rule in New York. You don't lean your entire body against the pole because other people need to use it. So it was rush hour. And this woman in London, she had her entire body against the pole. So I just went up to her and I was like, hey, do you mind if I put my hand on that pole? Every single person, it was like record scratch. Every person in the train car stared at me and the girl scampered away. She couldn't even just like be like, oh yeah, sorry. And just put her hand on there. And I was like, you just did divine work there. You empowered those people. But I have to say, I lived in London for a year. I had an English boyfriend that, oh, I was so in love, but he would always laugh at me because I, I didn't realize that everywhere was a cue. I would just walk forward as you do, because if you slow down as a New Yorker or a New Jersey person, you're just in the way of things. So just move as fast as possible through any hole And he told me that I was continuously cutting people in queues that I didn't even notice. I'm probably doing that because I have no idea. You know what? I call it efficiency. I'd rather you, I'd rather everyone move as fast as they can move. Yeah. Also, if I'm doing that, call me out. Yeah, exactly. I call people out here when they cut in line and I'm just like, hey, uh, you just cut in line. You can't do that. I almost started a rumble at the airport like last year because these girls, they, it was like one girl was in front of me in line and five of her friends came and stood with her. And I was just like, no, like, that's no, we're not doing you, that. That's a political party in and of itself. It's just the B who actually says what's really happening in a country of people who are not doing that. I think that you're on a mission and I'm proud of you. 
Yeah, it does not make me many friends, but it's definitely it's also you have to challenge yourself, I feel, to use that power for good. Like one time we were at a movie theater and something malfunctioned and there was this guy who was just being so mean to the people that worked there. And everyone else was just sitting there letting him be mean because, you know, they're British and they don't do conflict. So I just was the only person who was like, yo, calm down. Like, it's not this guy's fault that the friggin' projector broke or whatever. Like, you got to chill. And everyone looked at me like I was crazy, but then the guy stopped. So, so good. You know. you know what? It's like we spent our whole lives trying to get out of Jersey, and Jersey is so powerful. I love it. I, you know what's funny too? Because I'm, I don't know if you know Montclair, but it's like Montclair pretends it's not New Jersey, and our, all our parents you know, work really hard to instill, well, we met in Brooklyn and (laughs) not really New Jersey. And then just feeling that the Jersey roots are so real. I love that. It's almost like a big F you to the elitism to just be like, oh no, you raise a Jersey child. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And also I just feel like it's basically the same as being culturally brought up in the outer boroughs as well. Well, maybe not anymore because now it's like Yuppieville. Like it used to be you would meet people's parents who were from like Brooklyn or the Bronx and they would have these great like super thick New York accents. But I think that's gone now, right? Yeah. Montclair, New Jersey has become much more yuppie than it used to be. Now it really is what it always wanted to be. <laughs> Montclair, <laughs> right? And it's so funny that um, tagline when we, grew, we were growing up, it was called Montclair Beyond Compare, like you can't compare us, which was resonated into pretty much every household where they're just like pumping children with ambition. Um, but now it's so funny. When I went back last time, they had big banners that said, where the suburbs meet the city. So it's really trying to pretend that they're not a suburb. Wow. Yeah. Well, Montclair is beautiful. It is beautiful. And there's a lot of diversity. When we were growing up, I think it's being you know, drained out of the system. Um, I don't, I don't know. I'm not a mayor of a small town, but I would, I would say that it, it growing up, um, it was very socioeconomically diverse. Um, and it was very diverse in terms of black and white people, which is, you know, great. It was named the best town to grow up as an interracial family. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So I feel, especially with all that's happening and now living in LA, which is so divided in the most horrible way, I Mm -hmm. do feel that resonance of, just, I think the cultural reckoning that people are having right now, I'm understanding what a deep privilege it is to have been, you know, raised from childhood in, in a very racially diverse town. Yeah, for sure. I was raised in like Whitey Whitesville, and I will be undoing that damage for like the rest of my life of just you know, snap judgments, unconscious bias, having to know when someone is saying something that I should tell them to whether I should tell them to stop or not, you know, it's just like constant. And then when I look back at the things people around me were saying when I was growing up, it's just like casual white supremacy all the time, all day, every day. So yeah, I would definitely not raise my children in that environment. (laughs) Yeah. It's hard. It's hard. Yeah. It's all very real. We all have it. We're all part of this. Yeah, for sure. What do you find people's sense of humor is like in LA? Because I haven't spent a lot of time in LA. I've only been there once or twice. I spent a little bit more time in Northern California and I found it so funny because people just like didn't understand sarcasm. And like, I would make a joke and they'd be like, 
well, that's not true. And they would look like heartbroken at whatever I was saying. And I was just like, oh my God, who are these pod people? And it, it reminded me of like what British people say about American sense of humor, because I think in the Northeast, we have more of a British sense of humor that's like dry and caustic. So what what do you think about that? That's very real. I mean, I, when I went to, when my, I spent my time in London, that's the thing I appreciated. I think most of the culture is everyone's very funny. Very, very funny. You, I think it, a, a typical English person is funnier than a 10 years in the field working comedian in LA. So that being said, very much true. Um, I think that there is like a way with words that, like you said, Northeasterners have, you know, the kind of friendly wits, like gene is, is real. Um, I think that LA is a very specific place because almost everybody moved here. Um, and many people moved here because they like being funny on stage. And that's been my main circle of friends. So I've been mm-hmm. very lucky to be friends with like very, 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 very funny people, funnier than in New York, I'll say, but I just, cause I found my people. Right. Um, and I partake in a kind of, um, it's comedy based in the clown world. So we call it idiot work. Um, and it's based on, it comes from our, I guess you could say our guru teacher. He wouldn't want to be called either of those things. John Gilkey, who comes from the circus world. So I, the world I play in, you know, when live comedy exists is a very specific offshoot of like the alt comedy world. And it really is very physical, um, working with an audience. So it's kind of a mix of improv stand up. Like you're just an, a version of yourself. There's no, we're building a scene and we have cups. It's like, we're working with an audience, and like making a really crazy, crazy things happen in a room. Right. So we might be like hired to like be at some, you know, art gallery and then we're like the trouble, right? So we have a show, but there no one's really sure if it's a show or if it's a uh, just random people talking or you know, so very That's cool. Yeah, I I love it. And the whole attitude is really just messing with expectations. Um so I'm lucky enough to be part of basically like a group of the funniest people that I know. Um but that took a while to find and it's a very specific group and I don't think it's LA um you know, anything to do with California. Yeah, absolutely. I think the thing with LA and California is like with the people that are born and bred there, it's just so beautiful. And I think when you have no hardship, you don't get funny. Like you don't develop a sense of humor. Very real. I mean, getting on the subway every day and just dealing with how much New York is, is a, I, I want to not use a bad word. <laughs> The, the very, like, the, the depth of hell that is life living and surviving in New York City, it is a badge of honor. It makes everyone proud to be a New Yorker and funny because it, yeah. it saw some things on the morning commute. For sure. But you do also meet some, like, humorless New Yorkers, too. Like, I remember when I first started working at my first, like, day job in New York, I was shocked at how seriously people took themselves. I was like, Oh my God, this is a nightmare. Everyone needs to lighten up. That is also very real. The thing I love about LA is you become friends with people based on a vibe. Literally you, you vibe with someone and then you're going on a walk with them and you're you're their friend. I felt in New York when I lived there that the experience was always, what's your resume? What can you do for my career? Mm -hmm. The ambition it's, it's, it really is like being on cocaine when you live in, in New York. It's like exciting, fun, thrilling. But if you have any heart problems, 
or you're you know over the age of 25, I wouldn't recommend it. Yeah, totally. I remember one time, the first time that I ever hung out in New York as an adult, it was before I had moved there yet. And I was on like, a, a, I was at a party on someone's rooftop. And some people came up to me and we were just like talking and having a good time. And they were like, so where do you live? And I was like, oh, I live in New Jersey. And they literally nodded and then turned and walked away. Yeah, it was crazy. Just to switch gears a little bit, since we do love to talk about pop culture on Diva Behavior, do you have a favorite recent pop culture news story? Well, I did very much indulge and have fun with the whole Hilaria Baldwin moment. Um, it's so dumb. It's I think I love it because there's nothing to it. It's like really, really the epitome of mommy blogger that no one even knows about. And then now it's a controversy that is just creating itself more controversy. It's very funny. And also as I, I was DMing you, I used to go to her exercise class. I went to her yoga class. The only thing I really got off from it was that gorgeous accent. I mean, her telling me to tuck my abs in with like her cute little poppy booty was so, so sexy that I was a monthly subscriber for a while. So you were a devotee of the Hilaria cult. I was. I was. And she had this cute little boyfriend who ran around on rollerblades and did all the work for her. And she would just show up and be adorable. And then word is that at Pure Foods right next door, the vegan raw bougie spot, Alec walked in. She said that she didn't know him. She was like, I don't, she pretended she didn't recognize him. All so they all say, man. Years later, she pretends she doesn't know what a cucumber is. Meanwhile, she met him at Pure Food, so she knows what cucumbers are. So yeah, it's all very fun <laughs> and and hilarious. So that's been a fun little little internet rabbit hole to go down. I feel like based on Hilaria Baldwin's criteria for who counts as European, you could claim Italian, you know, citizenship and speak in an Italian accent if you really wanted to. I could do that more truthfully than she could. Yeah, because she doesn't even have a Spanish parent. Yeah. So do you th- what do you think is going to happen with her and Alec? Do you think that Well, this is the thing that's so fun is that I love I love just seeing the unraveling of how many people who have had success in our capitalist society are like sociopaths and really just really don't even care about anything (laughs) besides their own um, image. So I feel I like Alec. I like listening to here's the thing, you know, he's always said, dude, I love him. I love him too. I think he's a great, I I would love a bear hug from him. I would love a good chat with him, but I, my hypothesis about this is that he is enough of an egomaniac that he wouldn't, he's kind of okay with it. I think he probably understands Okay, yeah, you had to build a character and then it went got a little too far, right? Because we all are anyone who's putting themselves out in the public, whether it's your Instagram handle or, you know, your Kristen Stewart, it's a brand. And whether you're aware of it or not, you are creating a persona by showing, highlighting certain things, contouring other things. And I feel like it's just one step too far, or maybe twenty, and then she got caught. I mean, once you do the fake accent, then he's your boyfriend. And now you're married. And now the whole world sees you as Spanish. I feel like she had the heart to heart with him because he heard her talking normal all the time. Normal as in terms of her real voice, not. Um, and so I think my hypothesis is that they had the heart to heart years ago. They recognized that they had to just keep going with the game. And he was like, honey, you're my show pony. Let's keep rolling. 
See, so I think that they didn't have the heart to heart. I think that maybe he realized what was going on. And he is a funny guy. Like, he fancies himself a comedian. He also fancies himself a member of the media for how much he bashes the media. He is supposed to be the kind of person who's above this sort of lying and don't pay attention to the man behind the curtain sort of maneuvering. So I feel like for him, he wanted he needed to have plausible deniability about her fake Spanish heritage. That's what I think. So he just he noticed one day. One day, maybe he said, hey, were your parents born in Spain? And she was like, oh, no. And he was like, okay. And he sort of, I feel like he slowly gathered the evidence and realized that it wasn't true. So he stopped telling people she was from Spain. And he hoped against hope that the truth would never come out. And now I think it still is probably unspoken. But I don't know. I just feel like if he knew and if he verbalized it, he wouldn't be able to stay with her. Mm, That's interesting. Also, he's been living separately from her. Oh, okay. That's fun. Okay. Yeah. I don't know how it hasn't been reported that widely. He was he was photographed um, walking in or out of a building elsewhere on Long Island. And I guess to get ahead of the story, they gave to, I think, I think they told the Post that he is living separately in order to isolate from them because he's filming right now and he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to be around the kids. But it's like he was also being Trump on SNL all last year and presumably not isolating from the kids. So I think the greatest hope for Alec is that he does. Because once you realize someone's a liar on a real level, there's the suspicion. But once you recognize you've been sleeping with a liar, for anyone who's not a sociopath, like that is undoable. In my experience, you know, I don't I've had friends who they lied about weird things and I just couldn't be their friend anymore. Because once that trust is broken, it's what can you believe? You can't have a relationship. I mean, it's cliche, but it's real. You can't have a relationship that if you don't trust a person. And it's such a stupid lie. Like, but it's the unrest. Just pretending. Yeah. What I love about it is it's like so dumb, but it just feels like that. It's that thing. Like, just never lie. Never lie because it becomes yeah. so complicated to build it out. I mean, that's the funny thing about pathological liars is that their lives are hilarious. You know, like they have to remember, oh, I went scuba diving in St. Croix when I was 14. No one cares whether you did or did not. And yet you've told so many people and then you built the whole storyline about, okay, and then I met this friend and then this and now you got to recall so many storylines. I mean, my best friend from high school was a pathological liar. She FaceTimed me the other day. I didn't respond because I don't want anything to do with people. I pray for liars, right? It's not a good thing. And it is a brain disorder. It's a real mental disorder. And it's that's not, so true. Right. I, I pray for them, but I don't want anything to do with them. Yeah. It's sad. And yeah, that I think is the main thing is like, yeah, I think you're right. He he probably now that he knows it's like the band-aid has been ripped off. How can he show his face on a late night talk show ever again? Exactly. There are Yeah. Stuff like they're humorless. Like if you can't get the joke of your own life right now, you're you're gonna be you're you're humorless, right? So I hope as I do for all comedians who've been through th- some things, which is many of them on different ways, many, you know, canceled comedians, I always hope that they're able to utilize their ability to see and speak truth with comedy to actually reconcile publicly rather than put band-aids on things or come back with some observational comedy that's not relevant to the actual funniness of what their real life has unfolded for them. 
So true. And isn't it funny how people I want I was gonna say men, but I guess we'll broaden it out just to be fair. People can be so blinded by love and sex that they like she would literally post pictures in her underwear holding up her infant like Simba. That is hilarious. Like it's yeah. it's not bad. I don't care if she's doing that. Like I hate when people get mad at women for wanting attention and being thirsty. It's like who cares? Yeah. But it's it is funny to post that photo. Like that's a ridiculous photo. Yeah. But like he has had to pretend since the jump that this is all copacetic and this is not funny. This is serious business of like doing naked yoga. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> no, it is it is sad and I think men, you know, as you said, like not to gender too much, but it's true and funny and sad. And that men are the first, the the good amongst them are the first to admit how powerful a woman's sexuality is over them. That it really makes them stupid and very obvious. Yeah, it's true. So what is your biggest diva tendency? So I love this because I really feel like your podcast has just given me this invitation to think about the word diva. My biggest diva tendency is an friends know this, including our girlfriend, Sarah, I literally don't look at my phone past 6 p.m. Pacific time. I don't look at my phone. I, I wake up as early as I can because my brain is so good in the morning and literally by noon, I'm stupid. So my diva tendency is literally doing this. And when I say turn off my phone, it also means then indulging in something like you know a reality TV dating show, something really mind-numbing and stupid just to unwind. Go to bed as early as possible. Wake up as early as possible and do my writing, do my exercise. That is my precious time. I'm not looking at my phone till around nine. Yeah. When I saw that you were going to be able to do this interview at 7 a.m. your time, I was like, surely this is a mistake. Like, so what time do you wake up? So on a really good day, I go to bed at 7.30, wake up at 3.30. That's super rare. What? Diva, diva AF. But on a normal night, I'm telling you, 8.30 p.m. sleep, 4.30 wake up. Because that's the only time that I write good. Ugh, I'm really jealous of you because the biggest wish in my life is that I could be a morning person. I feel like I'm a reverse diva in that way where I, I can't fall asleep and I cannot wake up. It's terrible. At the same, I want you to own that just as Sarah does. And we keep referring to our friend Sarah. She runs the Munial, which is an awesome collective. But I, I want you to own that because some of the most creative, brilliant people and the most fun people, I'm no fun. You've got love. You know, if I had a man who was keeping me up at night, I would be all up at night, right? And I know that I'm going to have to adjust when I do have that love in my life. But also, it's very fun. Being in the comedy world, it is a nighttime. And I think just own it and love it because that's your deeper behavior. Yeah, you're right. And I need to get rid of this dirtbag stigma that I have of like, if I sleep late, I'm a dirtbag who doesn't deserve happiness. Literally, this is like, I don't know where I got this conditioning from, but I, I got to get rid of it. All, somehow. Of society, all of society has told us that, right? So, so what was a time when a and I just love that I think that I want to just make sure I'm being clear that turning your phone off at six and refusing to respond is amazing. It's amazing. And we should all be doing that because what is the point of looking at it past 6 p.m.? Exactly. And so what? Yeah. What? Until I have that, I think it was a um, Ben Affleck quote from some movie where he was like, I don't have the last call. Like, I, I look forward to having a final call of the night, you know, with some guy oh. who's traveling the world. He's too busy to be here in L.A., but 
I have a lover, you know, when I have a lover, I might keep my phone on later. Yeah. That is what ruins all internal clocks is having a lover or partner. Yeah. So what was the time when a big diva moment in your life paid off? Okay. So I, um, basically I was at Vipassana, it's a meditation retreat. And I had this very clear vision of, do you believe in Brava, the show, the big Vegas spectacle. And I immediately got, you know, you, when you're just high on that confidence and clarity, which I think are the same thing. I was clear as day, sat down and wrote an email to this man, Voki, who is a Vegas performer. He is the originator of the main character in the show, Absinthe. And he's hilarious, amazing clown performer, director, creator. I wrote him the whole breakdown of this big Vegas spectacle that is like the Tony Robbins version of like a comedy show with Chippendales dancers, aerialists, magicians, and Talia Bravo changing lives. And he wrote back and was like, I'm obsessed with cults. I want to do a project on cults forever. Let's do it. And so that was a birth moment for Talia where she stepped up and I trained like as if I was Ariana Grande getting ready for my world tour. I told myself that I was, and then I had to be Brava. I got so toned. I got so fit, got all the costumes. It was fully produced biggest show like I've ever made created. And it was awesome. Tony Hirsch was there from Zappos RIP. Um, It was a really awesome, awesome show. And I just, kept telling myself, this is Bravo, like all the diva internal clocking of, you know, don't make it about you. Don't like promote so much. Don't like have the, the big photo shoot. I just turned all that off and I channeled Brava said, I'm doing this for Brava, which is what she calls a God is Brava is the God she channels. And it was so freaking fun. That's so cool. When was that? Um, was like two years ago now. Yeah. Wow. Would you ever bring it back again? I would love to. Yeah, it's called yeah. Believe in Brava. I I then did iterations of it um, called Ascension at little smaller venues. Um, so like the core of that same show exists uh, and and continues to evolve. But I would love to bring it back in its full glory with you know the Chippendales dancers. They're really what we yeah. That is sick. And what kind of venue were you in when you did that? It was this really, I can't remember the name of it now, but it was um, in downtown Vegas and it was interesting. It looked like an old movie theater. It had a big, thick red um, curtain and like these huge seats and it was kind of underutilized and dusty and looked like it was from the 70s. So it was perfect. That's really cool. And I should have asked you this first so that we weren't ending on a bummer note, but have you had a moment when you had a diva moment in your life that backfired? Yeah, I think that it's interesting. When I first started doing Talia Brava, my boyfriend at the time was like my assistant. And I was very, um, I was in the masculine energy of the character at that point or alter ego at that point, um, where I was playing this Tony Robbins type on stage and I would utilize him. And it was really funny. We had this like whole bit where I, I demeaned him on stage, just the way that Tony sort of like walks around with his wife talking about how they have great sex and they have love and passion. And it's, she's just like this sweet lady who's sort of like smiling and nodding. So I really utilized like demasculating my boyfriend on stage as a joke. And we all felt it was very funny because in my private life, we knew like he was, he's a very strong person and it wasn't our dynamic. 
But I think always what happens on stage in some ways playing out some role play and it does affect things. And I think that I kind of, I feel like I, I, he probably would never say this to be true, but I felt like it messed with our relationship. The fact that I was continuously demeaning him publicly on stage. Mm, Very interesting. I'm going to have to keep that in mind. Because it is always a risk, isn't it? Whenever you talk about relationships or like bring them up or do it, like do it together on stage. It is. I think the day yeah. that I prioritize my relationship over my comedy, I'll know it's the one because I, up until I've always prioritized my comedy and, you know, sort of gotten permission about their boundaries. But at the end of the day, I, I've, I've always felt like the thing that's more real for me is my expression than our relationship. But one day, I hope that to not be the case and for a relationship to be the number one priority. Yeah, well, good luck. We'll see. <laughs> we well, thank you so much, Lucia. This was awesome. What a great, wide-ranging conversation. Oh, what a delight to talk to you. I knew from the moment that you came on the moon, you all. I was like, I need to talk to that lady. (laughs) Thank you. I felt the same way about you. You're so freaking funny. And where can everyone find you? What should they follow? What should they keep up with? So at Lucia Brizzi is my Instagram. From there, you'll see at Talia Nada Brava, my alter ego. But everything really hugs in the central place of at Lucia Brizzi. And then if you go to www.b-brava.com, that's where you'll see my coaching and training work. Um, If you go to taliabrava.com, you'll see lots of fun content. That's comedic, personal growth stuff. Super cool. Well, thank you so, so much. Thank you. What a delight. Some people think divas are diva to you. Would you say, are you one? I never said that. Diva behavior. Great, uh, great gowns, beautiful gowns. (laughs) Of course, I don't trust you. Diva behavior, the podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.